Hey, welcome to The Goods, a new film podcast by Brian and Dan. This is Dan Stalkup, the founder and editor of EarnThis.net, and I have Brian with me. How you doing, Brian? Hi, guys. This is doing all right. This is Brian Terrell. I uh, host a public access series called Count Gauntley's Horrors from the Public Domain. I've been passionate about film for a long time, and so I had to jump at this opportunity to be involved in a movie podcast. Hopefully you're jumping at the opportunity to listen. Brian and I have been working together on creating various content uh, for the better part of a decade. Uh, We both write for the site I mentioned, earnthis.net. Haven't been writing as much on it recently. I kind of slowed down when I had a kid and we've all been kind of busy with 2020 in life, you know, but one of Brian's uh, great contributions to the site, earnthis.net is uh, a series, the Brian Terrell's 100 Film Favorites, I think it's called, and you counted down your 100 uh, favorite movies, and then you also had a bunch of honorable mentions there. And it was just like you you showed you had a good knack for for talking about movies, thinking about them, and so I thought we could maybe put our heads together and see what we collectively thought about a handful of, of different movies we could watch and comment on together. Certainly. And 2020, you know, if nothing else, it's given us a pause moment that is so rare these days to kind of evaluate our priorities. And uh, for both of us, a priority came to the front, which was, you know, write a little more, go go back to discussing media a little more. And uh, so we're going to seize that opportunity while we have a, a moment of lull. Yeah, or or at least like a whim of inspiration to to give it a try. It's been a while. We had a podcast back in the day, the Earn This podcast. This one's going to be film focused. It's called The Goods. And The Goods originates from an idea that Brian had, which I think was going to be a spinoff from the film favorites column of movies that didn't quite make the your 100 favorites, but were still ones that you wanted to talk about. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I had some overflow ideas, either ones that have come up subsequently that I've seen, or just ones that I think about a lot. Movies that come to mind in my day-to-day life um, that I just haven't written about before. And I'd come up with like a dozen or so possibilities for this spin-off review series I was thinking of. The idea, yeah, being that these are ones that I always think of as, as good movies. They may not be my favorites, but they're ones that's like, hey, have you ever seen Fantastic Planet? That's a movie that's good, really weird. It's stuff like that. Or the 1997 TV movie of The Odyssey. Just movies that maybe not don't get talked about enough, but have certainly made an impact on me. And so I shared that philosophy with Dan. Um, when he was searching for a premise for a podcast. And I think it's provided a germ of an idea for what we're going to be doing here tonight. Yeah, I don't think we've quite figured out exactly what the the overall pitch is, but we are going to help you listeners figure out if if the movies that we're talking about here are or are not good movies. And hopefully most of them will be good because I like watching good movies. And uh, As do I. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I also sometimes like watching not good movies. So I'm, I am hoping some of them are not good movies too, but if I hope they're not good in a good way. Um, if they are good, man, I'm going to be saying the word good too much on this podcast, aren't I? Well, I think that's what we're here to determine. Um, <laughs> that the movie may turn out not to be good, but hopefully our journey to discover that fact will produce something that is good. So a, yeah, a listening experience, which is ultimately beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, hopefully the podcast at least will be good. Um, That's right. I think each episode we're going to have, we're going to start by introducing the film, maybe kind of where it is, its background. Maybe there's a reason we chose this in particular as a movie to talk about. Then we're going to do kind of a brief recap and that'll give us the chance to comment on the characters and the, the plot. Then we'll talk about things that were good, things that were not good. And overall, what did we think of it? So the movie that we chose for our debut is not one that I think either of us really had a lot of strong feelings about uh, going into it, but it was just one that I picked because it's one that I happened to watch recently. And that is Suspiria, the 1977 uh, version. It was, it's a horror movie. It was directed by Dari. I'm going to butcher. I shouldn't have picked a foreign film for the first one. Cause I'm going to butcher all these names <laughs> and all these words. Dario Argento is the director. And he, uh, he was, a big horror Italian filmmaker. Um, I think most of his movies were actually written in English and and filmed in English. At least this one is. And Suspiria is loosely about witches, I guess, at a a, a dance academy. And uh, this, this girl, Susie was her last name. She had an interesting last name too. I forget. Uh, made me think it of something. Bannon here in your notes. Oh, Bannon. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I know yeah, why. It's, it's because uh, O'Bannon is a character in Dazed and, Dazed and Confused. And it, it had me think about whether <laughs> like this Susie was connected to the lineage of the Dazed and Confused cast. She is American, so it's possible. But Interesting. And I think this director, Dario Argento, is considered like one of the masters of Italian horror. And this in particular sure. is, I think, his, his master, often considered his masterpiece. It's a little bit of like a divisive kind of cult film because it does some things in a sort of extreme style, which we're going to get to. It's kind of like an artsy horror almost. It has a lot of, in the Italian sort of art film way, has a lot of attention to the framing, the lighting, uh, the atmosphere, and a little bit less to like a coherent story and plot. And the kind of cultural framework at this point was that basically every horror movie was either imitating or reacting to The Exorcist, which was one of the biggest movies of the 70s and was kind of had redefined what horror was to the masses. And uh, one of the fallouts of that was the Italian horror movies, uh, a lot of them were in the style called, I don't, again, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce this. The giallo, which is Italian for yellow, which were these mm-hmm. kind of pulpy, atmospheric murder mysteries. I haven't, I, I'm familiar with the term and the genre, but I don't think I've ever actually seen one of these uh, giallo films. And I think this is kind of considered one of the first. I've heard giallo. Before. Giallo? Like, is that how you say it? Like there's always room for giallo. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what kind of diet is that? There's always room for giallo. Yeah. 
Um, this is like a post Jalo, so it kind of comes on the tail end of it and uh, is typically not considered in that genre or is kind of like on the edge of that genre. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the cast, um, the, by far the person who gets the most screen time is Jessica Harper. She's Susie Banyan. And then there's a couple other characters who are, none of them are nearly as prominent. Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc is one of the staff members. Alida Valley is Miss Tanner. She's another one of the staff members there. There's, I didn't even write down the name of the, the actress who plays Sarah. She appears a lot in the second half of the film. She's another American. But the other main collaborator... I feel like we got to give a shout out. I didn't, I didn't write down any actors' names. I got to do my research before the next one. But got to give a shout out to the creepy butler guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's shambling around. They say he only speaks Romanian so they can insult him to his face. Yeah. And the, um, uh, and the blind the, dude who plays piano for the dancers. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk more about him. But he has a great scene where he he's like, he basically has no role in the film except for, well, a scene where he dies. And a scene where he has like a breakdown. He gets really mad when he gets fired. And it's kind of yep. like the most acting that actually occurs in this movie is when he does that. So yeah, shout out to him. And then I actually watched this movie twice. So I watched it once and then I watched it again in prep for this. And I noticed I hadn't seen it as much the first time. There's this one like woman who's a maid or, or something. And she just pops up in like every single scene. And I wanted to figure out what her name was so I could figure out who she was. Cause it was funny. I didn't notice her at all the first time, except she has like, one prominent scene where she flashes something at uh, Susie's face. It's kind of like when the oh, witchcraft... Oh, yeah, that bright light thing that she's got, yeah. That's like when the witchcraft begins. And that. And then I started noticing that woman in almost every scene. So uh, shout out to her, too. Um, but beyond the cast, uh, a main collaborator is... Uh, this director had a good relationship with this uh, progressive rock band called Goblin. I guess they were also Italian and they did like weird, intense, experimental, highly prominent scores for many of his films, including this one, which Brian, I think you made a shout out to on one of your, you, you're on a film page on Facebook uh, called Brian Terrell movie night. And uh, you made a shout out to them one time. Yeah, that's right. Because my exposure before this movie to Dario Argento and Goblin, they both collaborated with George Romero to make 1978's Dawn of the Dead, which is one of the best zombie movies ever made. And certainly the score is a big part of that film, uh, but it's probably even a bigger part of Suspiria. Uh, going into Suspiria, I'll probably return to this later, but the things I knew about this movie before I saw it uh, were that... It had a really good soundtrack, really scary, evocative, half-verbal music. Um, and also from some stills that it had crazy color and use of light. And we'll, we'll come back to both of those things. But I would agree that those are probably the two things that really stand out. It's the soundtrack is always there. It's ringing in your ear. There's like sort of enunciated words that pop up and it, it's yeah, just it's like, it's like cha, so cha, jarring. Cha, cha. yeah very it's disturbing and um it just unsettles you and, and kind of 
makes you feel like something bad's about to happen the whole time. I think it works pretty well. And then, yeah, I definitely agree. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about the color because that to me is probably the single most interesting thing about this this movie. So, uh, I guess we'll hop into kind of going over the what actually happens in this movie. And feel free, Brian, to to let me know if you have any thoughts as we're going through this. So, oh, movies... certainly, yes. Your your bullet points seem thorough. So I'm I you've kept better track of it than I have, and uh, <laughs> you did say you watched it twice. So. I'm I'm interested to hear the recap and contribute where I can. So the movie opens with Susie in an airport. Susie arrives at this airport. She comes out of the airport. It's pouring down rain and she tries to hail a taxi, has a hard time doing it. Finally, Hop gets a cab. This cab guy is like looking over his shoulder, all kind of creepy. His face is lit weird. And he she has a hard time telling him where he wants to go and I, the first time i watched this i didn't know what was like i was thought is this going to be a movie where she gets abducted is it what's going to be happening here cuz the, the i actually think the first maybe 10 or 15 minutes 20 minutes of this movie are might be the most effective part for me because it just really unsettles you and like sets the stage for something super creepy and weird to happen and then lo and behold it does happen but not at first. So she gets her, her taxi. She takes this long ride to a uh, dance academy. So it turns out she's been recruited to join this this dance academy in Italy, a ballet school, I guess. And so uh, I think the school is in Germany. Is you it can, in uh, Germany? Check my name. I know it's Italian filmmakers. I believe the academy is in Germany. Interesting. We, uh, not to derail everything. Um, that is that was my take. Okay, so they're in Germany. That makes more sense. So she got. It says yeah, a prestigious because... German dance school on Wikipedia. That's what it says. Okay. But... Well, there you go. Wikipedia is never wrong. <laughs> so Susie uh, arrives at this academy after this long car ride. Did you like have any reaction when you were watching this car ride? It was like blaring red colors, like weird effects on the glass and the light. And I always just got the heebie-jeebies the whole time. I thought it was uh, pretty well shot. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic horror setup. Similar, I mean, you could compare it to the opening of Dracula, where he's taken the carriage into the mountains up to Dracula's castle. Or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when they're driving through the backwoods and they pick up the hitchhiker. You always got to start out a horror movie with a character going into some unfamiliar territory in a vehicle. And then... She gets or, there. or you know, the family takes a vacation to Nilbog. Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, Classic horror cinema trope. Yes. Um, and when she, she gets to the academy, first of all, has this weird, like dark red exterior, which is like it's almost like royalty, almost looks like blood, maybe. I don't know. There's this weird scene going on there where this woman is running out of the door and you don't know what's happening. She's kind of talking to herself. It's raining really hard, so you can't really hear what's going on. And Susie tries to get in. She like talks to the intercom and she someone tells her, you're, you're in the wrong place. You got to go. Susie doesn't really know what to do, so she gets back in the taxi and goes away. She's, as she's driving away from the academy determined to come back later uh well we, we learned that she's going to come back later she sees that woman who was running away from the house like as she arrived and just sees her kind of running away in a panic and then the the movie 
shifts perspective to that woman and she arrives at a uh like i guess a friend's house or someone else's house and this is the first of like four or five times throughout the movie where things rapidly escalate to a brutally violent and vivid death of one or more characters she the woman's in the bathroom She's really unsettled by whatever was going on. The window flings open. Oh, it's just the wind, says the hostess. No, no, it's not. Give me a minute. And then the girl, she keeps looking out the window, and all of a sudden these eyes appears. And then a hand reaches through, pulls her into the glass. The hostess, who's outside, is trying to break back into the bathroom. The woman gets just stabbed a whole bunch of times at various angles and close-ups. And then she, through some sort of elaborate choreography ends up getting hung from the ceiling and the glass yeah, in the gets, ceiling. She like, gets thrown through a skylight, yeah. And then that glass falls down and you get one of the most memorable shots of the whole movie. This glass and metal shards having completely impaled this this woman who was just hosting her friend, helping her friend out. And there's blood everywhere, except it looks basically like red paint at this point. These, we have our first two body counts in the first 20 minutes of the movie. This was for me like the peak of like what the hell is going on? I'm freaked out. Things are super intense uh, for the whole movie for me. Um, yeah, I watched this with my brother, and at this point, we were very confused because <laughs> we had kind of missed the part that it switched perspective from the one girl to the other girl. And uh, I think my brother said it best about this film. He said, "There's too many brown hair girls in this movie." <laughs> <laughs> there definitely it, are. Yeah. There's like, like a lot of a lot of similarly aged, kind of similar looking female characters that are being followed they, throughout this story. They all have the dancers build, you know. They're they're all tall and slim. But yeah, so you so you guys thought it was pulling a psycho with the protagonist dying halfway through, less than halfway. Yeah, through we were movie. we were trying to figure out because there was like yeah people going in and out of the dance academy, and like the dance academy is very red on the inside. And then the character who ends up murdered, she goes to this other location, uh, I guess the friend's house, wherever she's deciding to stay there on the inside of that building is very blue. So it's like, okay, clearly this is not the same place because this is a blue building. Um, but I, I was confused at this point. There were several parts of this movie where I feel like continuity was not like a, the central thought or perhaps even disrupting the sense of continuity and cohesion was part of like an artistic choice and right i I think that's fair so then we jump back the next morning Susie gets back to the dance academy and she meets the staff including this woman madame blanc who's like very pretentious but very nice to Susie. she meets all the students there's like this thing where there's uh, one of them is this uh another american girl named sarah she ends up being pretty important in the second half of the movie And there's this kind of mean bullyish character who she rooms with briefly. We, then we don't ever hear from her again. I'm not sure what the point of that character was, but it's all kind of set up for this unwelcoming sense of this dance Academy. And then after one of the first rehearsals, she's walking around to go, I guess to another rehearsal or go to something. And one of the workers of the building, so not a dancer, but like this is the woman I mentioned earlier. She's got like a crystal or a mirror or something. Yeah, it's like a prism thing or a mirror that she holds up. And it and shines a beam of light into, into the girl's face. She starts clearly looking 
disheveled and lightheaded after that light hits her and it's it's uh she goes to this rehearsal and she says she doesn't want to do the rehearsal, but then the instructors kind of make her and she passes out. Then she wakes up. And so she's out of the dance studio. She's in some room. It's not the room she was in before. Again, it's another kind of jarring continuity. Where exactly are we situation? And a bunch of the staff is around her, including this weird doctor guy. He gives her like some weird injection, basically without her consent. It prescribes her like a weird diet of wine and yeah, it's like have red wine all the time because it'll make your blood strong. Yeah. If you need strong blood, that'll pump you up. If you, you know, it's the Italian way. Drink a lot of red wine. <laughs> when I went to Italy, that was pizzas and red wine was basically my, my diet there. So I, I guess we're in Germany, not Italy, but as, as discussed. So then, okay, she's been injected. She realizes that, hey, she got she's not rooming with that girl she was going to be rooming with, but now she's next to Sarah and Sarah says hi. And then they're going to get ready for dinner and creepy stuff starts happening again. So Susie starts combing her hair and she notices what's this thing in my hair and looks at her comb. And it's like a creepy crawly maggot. We get a nice close up of this, what is clearly a live maggot. She notices more on her brush and then she looks up one falls. She looks up, the ceiling is covered with them. And then we get like this kind of panicked shot of all the girls in their rooms noticing the maggots. Some of them it's fallen on their face. Some of them it's fallen on their clothes and everybody's freaking out because it's raining maggots from the sky. This is kind of weird from the rest of the movie. So much of the, these creepy scenes ended in like brutal violence, but this is just like a, a weird thing that happened with no real explanation kind of stood out from yeah, some of the very effective gross out moment yeah they just got tons and tons of these maggots all over everything yeah and they're clearly real like it's no cgi in this film um, that's right so they figure out one of the instructors goes up and there's like this attic and this attic it's gets all this kind of dramatic shots in there something weird going on with this attic but then i think it's Mad- madame blanc or maybe it was a different one of the instructors i don't know she goes and she finds this trunk it's just covered in maggots and i don't know if we ever learn anything else about that trunk but we're, we learn that this attic is a spooky place and you probably don't want to be spending too much time up there it's a lesson that True. sarah would not learn so i was wondering could did you get a sense of what was actually there in the middle of all the maggots i couldn't tell the so, headmistress or whoever it is blames it on a shipment of bad food that caused it. Like that's the explanation she gives, but I couldn't recognize what it was actually supposed to be that was in there. I think it's definitely not 100% clear. My take was it was like some sort of magically desecrated dead person that we don't know anything about. Some yeah. overflow of magic and creepiness made maggots appear everywhere. Sounds about right. That's usually what does it. <laughs> Again, like this sort of coherence is not exactly strong suit of the film, not a focus of it. And then that night, they uh, because there's maggots up in their rooms, they all have to sleep in one of the dance studios. It's one of the most visually distinct scenes of the film. You get this like red light all around the, the sheets. And there's a bunch of hanging sheets. Silhouettes between sheets and stuff. And you kind of hear this creepy breathing noise. And... Sarah, the friend of Susie, says that breathing that we hear is the directress. So she's like the, I guess, the head of the academy, but we haven't seen her yet. So at first I thought that was supposed to be one of the instructors we met. 
but then it becomes clear right. this is some other mysterious person that we haven't met yet. And yeah, they really play it up how how mysterious the directress. She's there behind the curtain. Like you definitely set in the scene for the directress to be a pivotal component of this. So then the next morning, things just keep weird things keep happening. So there's the what the the pianist who plays the music that the girls dance to has this seeing eye dog. And this dog starts going kooky. It attacks the Madame Blanc's son, who's often on the fringes, fringes of scene. And then the son is fired and leaved. And as we talked about, this was kind of a weird well, the moment. The pianist in the film. is fired and leaved. Excuse right. me. You're right. The pianist was fired and leaved. And he, he leaves the building. And as he's like storming out, he has like this, this tantrum. And it, it kind of stands out from the rest of the film because it's like a legitimate acting moment for this <laughs> character in a film that otherwise does not have much in the way of acting. Yeah, well, Madame Blanc, I believe it is one of the one of the staff members takes his cane and throws it across the room, and so then he's like shuffling around angrily looking for the cane. Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely a moment that sticks sticks out. We leave him for a minute, so he's gone, and then it cuts back to uh, Sarah trying to w- wake Susie up, and now it's evening that of that day, and something's going on with Susie in her sleep, like she can never be woken up. She's always drowsy after she has her mysterious wine and soup meals, whatever they are. And uh, Sarah is freaking out and saying there's weird stuff going on. She, I don't think the staff leaves at night because the footsteps don't go towards the exit. They go the other way. Susie's not really comprehending it. So Sarah writes down something in a little note and uh, sticks it to sticks it in like Susie's pocket or, or Susie's bedside drawer or whatever. And then Sarah leaves and then we cut back to the pianist. And again, we're kind of at the rhythm of the movie where the, the weirdness is starting to escalate, except for the moment he's at like a bar and it's like a elaborate, like German drinking sing-along bar. And I actually like my, one of my strongest reactions to the movie is like, I want to be in that bar drinking the beer, watching those guys dancing. It seems like a fun place to be. <laughs> oh yeah. They're doing this, the slap and clap dances. As they say on Jimmy Neutron. Uh, polka going on. But I guess the yeah. pianist has had enough to drink. He's, he's effectively drowned his troubles. He gets up. He gets his dog. He, he starts leaving. And then he ends up in this like weird, unlit, civic kind of square. But there's nobody there. And it's really dark. And there's some weird shots where something's watching him. The, his dog starts acting up. And then all of a sudden... The dog jumps up, grabs his throat, chews up, tears out his throat, and the the pianist is is dead by whatever this mysterious force is that's killing everything. We didn't get quite as much of a close up. It was one of the ones where you kind of had to use your imagination a little bit, and I thought that made it kind of one of the creepier deaths in the movie. Yeah, the build up here is very spooky. Um, the empty very European town square with like a cathedral or something like he's looking up at like gargoyles on the cathedral or something. Yeah. Uh, like big very, columns, very menacing. We're back at the Academy the next morning and everybody's freaking out. Well, particularly Susie and Sarah, they're freaking out about all the people, disappearances, deaths, and they go and they take a swim together. And again, something's keeping their eye on them. And Sarah admits that, that first night Susie arrived, Sarah was the one on the intercom telling her to go away 
because she's had a bad feeling about this place. That evening, uh, Susie once again is under this whatever this weird spell is. And so Sarah, because she can't wake Susie, decides that she's going to do the classic horror movie choice and go and try and figure out what the, the bad stuff is on her own in the dark in the middle of the night. And she goes to that one attic where the maggots had been and something appears and grab her. Presumably it's like all the same thing. Again, we never get really good sense of exactly what all of it is, even by the end of the movie. But this thing grabs her. She tries to escape, ends up in this room where she's kind of locked the door and the door, it's kind of a classic horror thing, like trying to unlock the door. It's happening very slowly. Although I would say pretty unconvincing, like, all they had to do was lift it up and they like kept partially lifting it up. I don't know if you noticed that when it was zoomed in. I did not think it was a convincing attempt to unlock the door. We know that her time is probably short on this planet, but I did not see how she was going to die here. She jumps out of a window and all of a sudden there's razor sharp wire everywhere and she like struggles out of it. And to me, this was maybe yeah, she's most... just thrashing around in in a room piled high with barbed wire for no apparent reason. It didn't really make sense, but it was probably the most visceral death of the movie for me, because like I could just feel my skin crawl imagining the wire scraping against me trying to get out. Yeah, it was very disturbing. My brother was saying she needs to just lie still at this. Point. Yeah, it's like, it's like clearly what she's situation. doing is not helping. Yeah, yes. But then the coup de grace, a guy reaches in with like a straight razor and slashes her throat, which, yeah. Probably I mean, seems like a, maybe even yeah. a mercy at that point. I know, because yeah. it's gonna, she's, she's not getting out of this. Yeah, things were looking really bad for her. And at least she was out of her misery then. Okay, so now Sarah's gone. So I think the only one we're left with is Susie. So we wake up, we, we, we have the next day again. Now Susie's like, what is going, why is Sarah gone? What's happening? calls up one of Sarah's friends. This was like a, a scene that for me, I guess was necessary to get like at least a little bit of lore in the movie, but kind of takes us away from the center of all the creepiness. She goes out on this bright, brighter day. Now it's not like it's dark and spooky talks first to her, to the, to Sarah's friend. And then to this professor, the professor, they talk about this witch, Helena Marcos, who happened to be the one to have founded this Academy hundreds of years ago. Wonder if it could have anything to do with all the creepiness that's going on around here. When she gets back, things that we hear we're, we're hitting the climax here. The a bat flies in, and I gotta say, so the, the bat comes in right after she decides to not have eaten her meal. So she pours out the the wine, and I thought it looked suspiciously like the rest of the kind of red painted blood we had seen throughout the rest of the movie. I'm sure that was intentional. Red is hugely important in this film. We'll, we'll probably touch on this again, depending on how long we end up going, but this is the reddest movie I've ever seen. Yeah, definitely. I, certainly up there. There is a movie, I think in 2012, called Red, starring Morgan Freeman and some of the other old actors. It was like out of a spy comedy movie or something, but I think this movie is even redder than that. Anyways, hitting the climax, for some reason, a bat flies in the window. I didn't know where the bat came from, and the bat was like very clearly a marionette bat, and I thought it was probably the least convincing, spooky thing in the whole movie. That's just my opinion. But they really linger on it. I mean, it is flying in her hair for quite a while. She like puts a blanket over it and smashes 
uh, stool over it and you see the viscera and blood of the bat kind of setting the stage for the spookiness about to come. So then she decides. So I wanted to back up for just a moment. I know we're certainly taking a while with our recap, which uh, may or may not be any given listener's style. But uh, what I wanted to point out was in the bit where she's like researching Helena Marcos and she goes and talks to this young guy who's like a a skeptic. He's a psychologist. And he says, he's got a good line. He says that bad luck is the product, not of broken mirrors, but of broken minds. And basically he pins anything that seems supernatural is the result of, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors or neuropathy, basically mental illness. Uh, But then he's like, I'm going to recommend you to a colleague of mine who specializes in this sort of thing. And then he gets up and walks away and this old man comes up and sits down and he's like, so there's a witch queen. (laughs) He's like, witches are real and they control the minds of people, especially young women. And all the witches are controlled by a witch queen. And if you want to do something about it, you have to kill the witch queen. It's like it's whoa, pretty intense that foreshadowing. Abrupt, that was a very abrupt 180 <laughs> to from there's no such thing as witches. I'm gonna have my friend tell you about it to the friend coming in and saying you need to kill the witch queen. Yeah, he's the Van Helsing character. He's the <laughs> the expert that they go to tells yeah. you what you need to do to beat the monster. Uh, but it was just felt very abrupt to me. That is interesting. I didn't think about that. And and so that happens before the bat murder. That's before they come right, back. Right, right. So let's jump out. back into the thrust of it where she's just smushed a bat now. Yeah, okay. So now she's smushed a bat and she... Okay, it's time for her to finally go figure it out because she finds that note that Sarah left her. Things are starting to come together. She's got the note. The note tells her apparently Sarah, I guess, counted footsteps, like listening to the staff members walking to wherever they were going. And then she follows the step counts and ends up in Madame Blanc's office. And then she remembers, we get like a kind of a, a Rashomon review of the, uh, the very, one of the opening scenes when they just arrived at the Academy. The, the woman who had ran away said, turn the blue iris. So it was like the key, oh, there's this flower pattern in the office and one of the flowers is blue, turns the blue flower it opens it. It was weird how it was like you didn't hear it at the very beginning, or at least you didn't hear it clearly. And then she suddenly remembered it at, at the very end. But she turns the blue iris, and lo and behold, a secret door opens. And now we're like in some weird chamber. It's got Greek wit- written on the wall. Follows it down. And then this ending happens, what I thought it seemed like it happened very quickly at this point. She sees a room full of witchcraft going on. They're like drinking a potion, doing spells. One of the workers, one of the guys notices her, comes out. She basically like turns around and there's the corpse of Sarah. She takes a few steps and she's in a room. And then all of a sudden in the room, she hears the wheezing again and sees a silhouette in the bed and everything comes together. This is Helena Marcos, the, the witch queen 
that she had learned about. She flings open the curtain, but nothing's there. So then she hears the noise behind her. Maybe it, the witch is behind her. No, the door's opening, and it's Sarah's corpse again. Sarah's corpse coming after it's now reanimated. But Sarah notice, Susie notices out of the corner of her eye that there's like an outline around the wit, where the witch had been. So she takes something that she had grabbed from a piece of furniture, stabs the, the witch, and then essentially like basically the apocalypse happens in this house. Everything starts flying and crumbling and exploding and burning up. Over the course of like 30 seconds, see Susie running out of the, the dance academy. Helena Marcos, the witch, has been purged. The set is being destroyed. I hope this was shot last. And she emerges out in the rain with a smile. She has survived. She's There's like a phrase for that. The woman who survives. I forget what it girl. is. Yeah, yeah, that's what it Final is. Final girl. So that is the, uh, the events of Suspiria 1977. All right, now that we've talked a little bit about the, the plot points and the characters and kind of as we went and some of the things that worked and some of the things that maybe didn't or at least were unusual... What do you think were some of the the things in this that really stood out to you as good things in this movie? All right. So I said that going in, the things that I knew about Suspiria 1977 were really creepy theme song that shows up in a lot of Halloween music playlists or horror movie playlists. And also a really prominent use of lighting and color and specifically the color red. And I will say that up until like 20 minutes from the end of the film, that's still all I knew about the movie. Like eventually she gets the mission to go kill the witch queen. It's like, okay, <laughs> I understand this now. My, my Hollywood forged brain is processing this properly now. Yeah. But certainly though it delivers those things, scary music and really artsy use of light and color in spades. Definitely. So the thing about the color, 100% agreed. Like that to me, I've never seen a movie colored like this. And you notice it from the start when she's taking that ride in the airport, you're getting red glares and off of the water droplets in the windows. And every single set you see has these elaborate colors that are just lit fully with like no shadows. So you can see every single colorful detail to it 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 definitely almost drowns you in the color the one thing i will say is yeah, in general you you had a good example earlier but uh, that was kind of a counterpoint to this but in general the color didn't really feel like coded to me it's like sometimes when you watch movies certain colors are associated with certain characters or certain things this one was basically like 80 percent red 15 percent blue and five percent green and yellow always throwing you off your game making you feel unsettled it's like here's an intense blast of a of red whether it's a red wall or like a red reflection or like something glaring over here and it's almost like the purpose is not necessarily to kind of do a sort of color association but to like just make you feel the colors basically i don't know right yeah it definitely evokes some strong feelings this film does uh one of the most effective scenes uh, that stuck out to me is pretty early on when Susie is walking down a hallway and she's just starting to feel sicker and sicker as she goes. 
And then it ends with them forcing her to dance in the dance class and uh, collapsing during that. But like something about just the progression down the hallway, gradually like putting her off her game, making her more and more uncomfortable and unwell was really effective. Yeah, definitely atmospheric in that way and just like making you I've used the word unsettling. I don't know if there's other synonyms for that that basically mean that, mm-hmm. but it it just makes you feel on edge. You kind of learn the rhythm of the movie after you've seen a few scenes and you know that like pop-ups that are going to scare you, like the things shooting out of walls or whatever, they're going to be built up to and they're going to be rare. And so most of the movie is just building this this kind of this creepy atmosphere of this this dance academy. And another thing that contributes to that is, for me, another thing that I would put in the category of good things is the music, which you've already talked a little bit about. I've already mentioned that, to me, the thing that stands out about it is it's just so pervasive. It's always there. It's always jangling in your ear. It's like like a fly buzzing almost. just makes you feel uncomfortable in each each scene. And they even say the title of the movie in the theme song. So, or I think they do, at least once, if you listen to it. Oh, is it like a whispered? So, yeah. The one, the one thing yeah. that I noticed the second time that I didn't notice the first time, and I think once you know that it's a witch movie, which as you said, you don't really know until the last 20 minutes, is mm-hmm. that you can like hear when something's about to pop out, it, they say like, witch. Like it's the word witch, which the first time through, I thought it was just like a gust or something. Definitely distinctly sounds like the word witch when you when you're hearing it. Right. Really unique soundtrack, really cool. Calls attention to itself, I would say. Were there any other good things you wanted to, to call out? No, I, I think I got it. I think we covered our bases as far as the really strong, effective facets at, of the film. At least the things that, that stand out, yeah. Right. So what were some of the, the not-so-good things in this movie? I've already mentioned the ones that mostly stood out to me. There was, like, two special effects that really did not work for me. One of them was the marionette bat, which, as you said, just hung around for a while. And the other was, and this is, like, my brain on 2000s CGI, when the witch, like, her silhouette appeared for Susie to stab, like, it's just very clearly a like white pencil on film. Like it just looks so different from the carefully designed look of the rest of the film that it kind of pulled me out from what should be like the most intense climactic part of the movie. Oh yeah. Um, That's interesting. There is like this, yeah. Drawn outline possibly aided by like a green screen type thing um, of a silhouette, this, this silhouette line that's broadcast. Right. Yeah. Like right before Susie stabs her. I also thought the pacing was weird. That's There's... what I was going to say is there is, it takes a long time in this movie to get a payoff. And again, I, I think horror, especially the Hollywood model of horror, uh, has accustomed us to a kind of a higher uh, chill per minute or something. You know, sitcoms that talk about laughs per minute. Uh, but horror, it's like you, you want something to be happening pretty frequently. Yeah. That's not necessarily what you get here. Yeah, I mean, it does have kind of a consistent rhythm where you'll have like 
five to 10 minutes leading to something, whether it's like a death or maggots falling from the sky. There is like a consistent drip of those things, but it, you're right that it's not bam, 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 bam. And, and also just, there's like weird things that like go nowhere. Like that one bully character who you kind of meet at the beginning, then she's gone after 10 minutes but not dead. She just, you don't see her again. Or if you do, it's like, you know, the side of the screen. And, and then they, there's really no like exposition or world building or mystery mythology building up until the, the scene we already talked about a lot where she go she goes and she meets the friend who's the skeptic. And then she meets the professor who explains who the switch is and that she's the that more or less says you're probably living in a coven and you got to go kill the the head witch and the fact that that all kind of happened pulling us out from after like one of the tense moments for me was uh brought me out of it a little bit i guess i also thought the end rushed like it was you just as you were getting to see the heart of it everything happens really fast and then like the definitely once once she gets that mission she's like oh that's what i gotta do and she goes and does it and then it's over yeah it's like weird there's like less that happens with it than some of the other deaths and some of the other mini climaxes throughout the movie and i wanted to see more of the of the academy like crumbling afterwards too it's like that happens in like 30 seconds basically Not to put us off on too much of a tangent, but we both watched Troll 2 together a couple days ago, and the climax strongly reminded me of the climax of Troll 2, which I guess would have come about uh, 13 years later. But just the way that, you know, you defeat the witch and suddenly everything is exploding and the house is being destroyed, very similar to that, the... At the close of Troll 2, when the protagonist characters put their hands on the <laughs> Stonehenge magic stone and destroy the, the witching influence that controls the town. That's good. I wonder if Dario Argento is a major influence on Troll 2. Like if you would go... It could have been. I mean, the... it was also a team of Italian filmmakers, Claudio Fergasso. It seems like it's in play, man. Who knew? You learn more about Troll 2 every day. <laughs> you certainly will if you follow this podcast. <laughs> Uh, were there any other things that you wanted to call out that for you were not so good? So I suspect this film suffered for me from uh, years of buildup. This is one that comes up on a lot of great horror films lists. And especially if you're like into film history, this is one that gets recommended as, as being kind of pivotal and, and artistically important a lot. And so I didn't really know what to expect other than people holding it up as an example of a good movie. And so that kind of brings its own baggage. It brings um, metrics that you're expecting it to meet. And then when it's a little different from what you're expecting, maybe it doesn't seem as good as you were hoping going in. Yeah. I don't know. That, did any of that, uh, any of that sense? For Well, that's a problem frequently for me for movies and books and stuff, especially... I call this influencer syndrome. I don't think this is exactly what you're describing, but sometimes if like something is built up as pivotal, 
and it ends up informing everything that you've consumed since and you go back and you consume the original what might have been like really groundbreaking at the time just seems kind of normal or plain to you like for me when i was a kid i loved sports movies and everybody always talked about hoosiers as the sports movie and then i went and finally watched hoosiers and i was like this is no different or better or worse than any of the sports movies that i really like i don't see why this was built up so much and i don't know uh i I didn't have the same experience as you uh, because I hadn't maybe seen it on as many lists as you, but I definitely know the feeling. Yeah, so so guess- certainly I've had a little bit of that. So is that where we segue then into our moments yes. of ultimate judgment? I tentatively titled this next section, is it good? And I have a scale from very not good to not good to not, not good to good ish good very good exceptionally good and tour de good and i guess it's a progressively better you, you get more and more good as you go up that scale it's kind of like our, our one version of our one out of ten uh we'll see if this makes the final cut but yeah, we'll uh, see how long this sticks around um, between episodes so where um, would but you certainly suspicion judgment on is it good so on this current scale I think I would be charitable and put it at uh, good-ish, all things considered, for me. Uh, so where does the, it fall on your, on your span? So, so for the uninitiated who are perhaps not looking at this scale written out, <laughs> that was 0.4 of 8. It's right between good and good-ish and good. So it's like right in the middle of the road. So you would right. say it doesn't quite make the good cut for good. It's it's goodish for you. I would put it, it higher than that. It is a striking film. It is a striking film for me. Yeah. I think you need to acknowledge it's it, it, it clearly there is an artistic vision here. For me I, I'm I'm going two steps above you. I'm going to call it very good because I, although from a pure entertainment perspective it had a couple of holes. I really admired and could just kind of soak in the the sheer artistry of the filmmaking of it, the colors, the framing, the, the spooky sense that the music and all those other things added up gave you the, the few moments that really got my skin crawling. You know, I don't like horror that makes me feel like something's always going to jump out of me. And sometimes I watch Hollywood horror movies and it, it's the suspense of the jump is too much for me. The jump scare. But this one, I, I didn't fear the jump scare, so I was able to absorb the spookiness a little bit better. So, and it, like I said, just admired the the craft behind it. So for me, I'm putting it two steps above you at very good on um, the is it good scale. I'll say it definitely. It does a really good job of creating a sense of menace that is pretty much omnipresent. Definitely, um, this is a place that you wouldn't want to spend any extended amount of time. This this witch controlled dance academy it's one of my favorite tropes i gotta say when uh i know it's big in horror or somewhat big in horror movies we talked about at least troll 2 is one other example but um when the movie ends that's like a movie where the setting is one of the main characters and like the destruction of that that setting is like the climactic thing that for me is, is like is a gratifying trope I almost always like, like a it. fall of the house of usher type thing. Yeah. To, to yeah. quote some reference, some Poe. No, it's good. Yeah. 
we got our own horror host here who's going to be bringing in the uh the horror references left and right for me the peak example of that trope is the uh ned's declassified school survival guide the middle school uh nickelodeon show uh-huh. where all uh, classic literary reference yes yeah maybe a different canon but the so that that play takes show takes place almost entirely inside middle school and in the finale the teachers just they just tear down the middle school there is a minor pretext for this it's actually a pretty good pretext for it but mostly it's just the physical gratification of the teachers are just literally tearing and they actually did destroy the set as part of the filming of that so and i would say if i were going to say is it good for ned's declassified it would be exceptionally good but that that's neither here nor there for suspiria but um yeah anyways <laughs> point being i i uh, i liked a lot about suspiria from 1977 i, I will say if you want to have the effect of the Willy Wonka boat sequence for the entire runtime of a feature film. Check out Suspiria. <laughs> it's not a bad uh, comparison because there's there's bright colors and there's the illusion of insanity and things aren't quite right. So I hadn't thought about that, but that's pretty good. And I guess now we're going to move to our, our parting thoughts on our premiere episode of the goods yes well now i'm imagining a ned's declassified recut using the soundtrack and uh, like some color filters from suspiria and and what could be done with that like scenes of uh ned walking down the hall but with suspiria the goblin music playing in the background like that jangling which whispering around like when she when he looks at Moe's yeah I could definitely see that happening I'll let you go first Brian did you have any any parting thoughts related or unrelated to this movie about what's been good for you recently in film I suppose or what have you been thinking about sure well we are heading into the Halloween season so it's a perfect time to be kicking off some movie talk um I do have at least one friend who's already doing a movie podcast and I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on ours but yeah it feels good this is a i'm still with a company that our, our business is highly seasonal in the summertime and so there's a little bit of a lull in the fall so this is a good time to devote to creative projects uh, keep an eye out for count gauntley's eighth halloween episode it's going to be um brothers grim scary fairy tale themed so that's that's what I've been up to. Haven't been to many movie theaters lately, which I'm sure is common to many of you. But been keeping up with some streaming services as as you do, and I'm hyped to talk about some more movies with you guys. Hoping this keeps going at least for a while. We can maintain the steam. Yeah, let's make it happen. What have you been watching, Dan? What's what's well, new with you? I'm just gonna read a quote from. One of my favorite movies and movies I watched recently because I think it's going to, it's a, this thought ever since I first saw this movie back in 2007 has been one of my, it's been in my head as a, someone who aspires to be a, a thoughtful critic and consumer of media. So I'm just going to read it and then I'm assuming you will recognize it by the end and, and uh, I'll just share what it is. But 
In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating it so. You know, the character who speaks this is a notorious snob. Yeah. But so you're he, just uh, going to drop that uh, Anton Ego line at the at the close of every episode? I think it, it, I don't know if it's going to become a tradition, but I wanted it to be the concluding thought of our first episode because I really Fair do enough. think that you know part of being a critic is just loving and enjoying the stuff that you create, and I want this podcast to be a celebration of of finding some meaning in in some of the things that uh, the good things out there, finding the goods in. Uh, in what we watch and you know maybe some of the films will only be goodish maybe some will be even not good i'm hoping we can at least at least find something interesting to talk about with uh, with each movie and, and each episode so that of course was That's anton ego from ratatouille the pixar masterpiece all right well i guess with uh with those parting thoughts that wraps up the first episode of the goods film podcast run by Brian and Dan, thank you for joining me, Brian. And you know, oh, maybe, glad to be here. Join us next one, time, guys. Yeah. Even if this one ended up a little rough around the edges, we'll we'll figure it out, and we hope you guys will stick with us. So, have a good evening, Brian, and we'll talk again soon. Good night, everybody.